0: All right, so here we go with week four of our series called Rooted. We're in week four, and I know it goes without saying, but uh, Wesley had some high expectations. (laughs) I think y'all have picked up on that, and uh, I'm excited for this week. We're gonna focus on, again, another aspect of that. And so I I know many of us, history isn't our favorite subject, but I I want uh, to provide a different angle. There was a colorful article I discovered this week that just highlights the impact of this early movement. So uh, bear with me with this little colorful introduction. Roger Starr, a journalist known as a liberal Jewish Democrat, when writing for a journal called The Public Interest in 1991, so early 90s of the US, 1991 discovered there was only one other period in history that actually matched the time in which we lived. It was 18th century England. There were problems of addiction, families decomposing, pollution, crime, and rioting. To to find out what pulled England out of its crisis, he consulted a historian by the name of Nathan Hatch of Notre Dame University. Through his research, he discovered the only thing that saved England was someone he'd not really heard much about, some guy named John Wesley and this movement called Methodism. Starr wrote, now I don't even know any Methodists. I don't know anything about them. But this Wesley started a movement that literally saved England. It was a movement that had profound social, political and economic consequences. About a month after Starr's article, a guy by the name of George Will, a journalist known as a conservative Roman Catholic Republican wrote an editorial for the Washington Post. Will wrote, I never thought I'd agree with anything Roger Starr has ever written but you know this liberal has actually got a point. It's, it's in that 18th century, you have these ger- the German Revolution, a French Revolution, American Revolution, revolutions happening all over the globe, but you don't have an English Revolution. There was an English Revolution of sorts. This Methodist movement was a revolution because these Methodists turned the world upside down. Maybe we need to take Roger Starr seriously and look at what the secret of those Methodists was. He added, I know this is going to sound strange for me saying this, that we need some more Methodists to save the world, and I hate to end my column this way, but does anyone else have a better idea? About a month after this article, a guy by the name of Fred Barnes, who wrote for, he's the editor of the New Republic, he's known as an evangelical Episcopal moderate. He says this, what these guys missed, what they forgot was that basically the Methodist movement was at the heart a spiritual awakening. Yes, it indeed had tremendous economic, social, political consequences, but it began as a spiritual revival. And unless we get in this nation spiritual awakening and spiritual revival that will create these kinds of economic and political consequences, it won't work. It has to begin with a movement of the spirit or it won't go anywhere. But we have to begin. We need some new Methodists in our time, what was for 18th century England. So we've got a liberal Jewish democratic conservative Roman Catholic Republican, and an evangelical Episcopal moderate all looking to Methodists for hope <laughs> in the early 90s. And I thought that was helpful as we, under, as we try to grasp the significance of the impact of this early movement, as we talk about our roots and who we are and where we're going, that this movement had amazing political, economic consequences because at the heart of it, it was a spiritual movement. It was a spiritual awakening that happened. So as these methodists are growing and this movement is spreading and people are again it starts really with poor and middle class folks as Wesley's going out to the fields and preaching where no one else is preaching people are are coming to faith and they're becoming set free from addictions like alcohol and gambling that plagued their life and all of a sudden all these methodists have money they didn't have money before but as Wesley's getting older and older and older the methodists start to have money and they're growing in their social status And Wesley sees this and is alarmed by all of this. He sort of foreshadows and sees. We could definitely say the first 100 years of the Methodist movement could be characterized with this booming, amazing, charismatic growth, right? In the last hundred years of the Methodist movement um, hasn't been characterized in the same way. And Wesley saw that if anything was going to kill this movement, and if anything was going to stop this movement, it was this accumulation of wealth. It was, if, it, it was the relationship of money and power with the people that were called Methodists. He saw this early on. And of course, Wesley had to speak to it. Nothing gets out of the purview of Mr. John Wesley if he sees a problem. And so um, it may be a bit uncomfortable and awkward for you to hear a message this morning, me and all of my experience and my long tenure with you here, talk about money in the midst of a capital campaign (laughs) where you're probably nauseous with the idea of of anything related to to church and money. And I can't help but think of my dad who used to balk at, and growing up in the Methodist church, he used to balk at Methodist preachers when they'd preach on money. Because some of the churches I grew up going to and the different pastors that we had, unlike Wesley, they weren't often as biblical in their preaching, except when it came to money. (laughs) Then they became Bible-thumping, biblical literates, and wanted everybody in the congregation to make sure they understood what God's Word really said on the subject of money, and, and it just to drive my dad crazy. And so I definitely saw that in the church growing up, and, uh, and I realize um, it's why uh, the doors are locked this morning, so you can't escape, <laughs> so you try and leave, you try and leave this morning. So, high expectations for sure we 're talking about um, wesley 's understanding of of money and the kind of problem he saw it causing in the movement this morning. so one of the difficult things in talking and preaching about money isn 't so much the subject itself it 's what passage are we going to use because we're going to be in First Timothy chapter six, verses six through ten, and and verses seventeen and nineteen. But the challenge with with the subject more than the challenge of the subject itself is which passage, because we could easily be in Luke eighteen and talk about the rich young ruler again, or Luke twelve and the parable of the rich fool, or James chapter two, or James chapter four, or James chapter five. We could be all throughout Matthew, Mark chapter ten. There's very few of Paul's letters that don't address the subject or the Old Testament. So Psalm 52, Proverbs 19, the great year of Jubilee and the law in Leviticus 25. These are just a few of the many, 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 many passages in Scripture where God's Word is speaking to us about money. And one of the temptations we have, at least I know I'm guilty of thinking this way, when we approach Scripture when we approach somebody like the rich young ruler, well, that's like a king with all the wealth in the world. Like that's a, I'm not part of that audience, right? That word is for somebody else with way more money than I have. The temptation is to not see me as the audience. It's, we kind of do that comparison game where we think of people in our lives who have a lot more than we do from a, in, from a material perspective. It's like, well, this, this scripture's talking about that. <laughs> Like, that's not... I'm talking about me. And we play that comparison game. And if we had, I think, more of a global perspective on some of this, we we might have to make a different judgment when it comes to some of these passages. Rich Stearns is the president of World Vision, and he left an illustrious corporate career as president of uh, Parker Brothers and, and Lennox, and he had this amazing corporate career until he took the same leadership role in World Vision. And many of you know what World Vision is. It's a it's a faith-based organization. It's It circles around the love and the grace of Jesus and the call of Jesus to go to the ends of the earth, to see children as... No child is lost to empower people out of poverty. So that's what many of you know what World Vision is all about. And he wrote a book, I couldn't believe it's been 10 years. And many of you are aware of this book, The Hole in Our Gospel. And in that book, he provides some statistics that are helpful for us, I think, to understand as we play this comparison game. Um, He provides these statistics, and I know they're a little dated, but more or less I think they're gonna ring pretty true about our racial and socioeconomic breakdown. I think this will help us play the comparison game a little better. So imagine the entire world population represented in a village of 100 people. That helps us, I think, wrap our minds around some of these numbers. 60 would be Asian, 14 African, 12 European, eight would be Latin American, five would be American or Canadian, one would be from the South Pacific, 51 male, 49 female, 82 non-white, 18 white, 67 non-Christian, 33 Christian. And then 10 years ago when this book was written, the average income for the average American was 38611 bucks. So that translates to about $105 a day. And we compare that to about 55 to 60% of the world's population that live on less than $2 a day. And, of course, in the U.S., we're only 4.5% of the entire global population. And then the top 20% earners in the entire world, when we think of the top 20% of the population in the world that, that make most of the money, over 86% of the world's resources are consumed. So that kind of helps us play that game comparison game a little better. So not only are we not off the hook, but like, we're the audience when it comes to these kinds of conversations, when it comes to passages like 1 Timothy. We are the audience Jesus is speaking to. Uh, Pastor David, as we were preparing this week, shared, shared this with me. He said, you know, those who take the Bible seriously are always seriously challenged by the Bible. And man, the Bible is always offending us, isn't it? Always. So let's look, let's look at 1 Timothy. Remember, the doors are locked, you can't, you can't leave. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, verses 17 to 19. Verse 6 But godliness with contentment is great gain. And that word gain there, I think in our culture, and our context, it's hard to hear the word gain and not think of money and not think of an accumulation of wealth for us. And this isn't the most obvious connection the ancient world would make when it comes to something like gain. But for us, it's like if we're presented with a respectable source of a way to make more money, we tend to listen to that. And we want to always make more money first and foremost. But it says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Nelson D. Rockefeller, that former New York governor and vice president of the United States, said this that I think sums up our culture pretty well. When he was asked by a reporter, you know, how much do you need to live comfortably? This is what he said, a little more than I get. Nelson D. Rockefeller says, a little more than I get. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. So that our very existence, our very existence here, we didn't earn. All that we have, like there's no decision that we made. There's no sense in our power or or any kind of effort or any purchase. There's nothing that we did. There's nothing that we did to have this life, our very existence, it's all, it's all gift, it's all grace. But, verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, we will be, con- we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I think it's important for us to remind ourselves that money itself actually isn't, it's a man-made thing. God didn't actually create money, but we did. And we have a propensity with the things that we make to twist them and use them to act in ways that God never intended for us to act. Just like we are beautiful creatures made in the image of God, given the free will, we often turn that beautiful creation that's ourselves and we twist We twist God's good and beautiful plan into something else, into something that is much, much less. We'll finish. We'll finish up and circle back. Verses 17 and 19 will complete our, our passage that we're focusing on today. Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Verse 17. So the problem with money is it gives us a false sense of security. I mean some of us save and save and save for retirement and save and save to, for now to try to ins- insulate ourselves from the disasters of life that happen and we feel safe and saying that that's a temptation that that's a trap we can't put our hope in that and many of us know all too well because of 2008 2009 the mortgage crisis all of a sudden boom just man money's paper and paper burns easy or money's digital and now these days you know Hackers can erase what we have, like be very, very careful of putting hope in money, Paul says those of us who put our hope in money are are getting into a kind of a trap. And for Wesley, he sees this as a steel trap that we can't get out of. It's it's something that requires the strength of the Almighty that once we fall into this, we, we are hopeless to get out with our own strength and that we need the power of God and the grace of God to get us out of this mess. But still for some of us that aren't quite saving yet, that's a moving target of whenever we can arrive at that place, right? We, we try, we try, we need more and we need more because someday we're going to arrive at that place where we're comfortable, where we can finally stop stressing about money and we can save and feel a little bit good about our lives and breathe, but isn't that an, inv- an invisible line? We never seem to arrive at that line, Money is a poor source of hope. Money is a poor source of power. And, and we live in a world that says the, the more money you have, the more powerful you are. But, but I know somebody who flung the stars in the sky and who breathed into mud to make me, right? Who, who made the sun stand still and who walked up Calvary to die on a tree for you and for me to set us free. Who had zero dollars and cents to his name. Yet we live in a world and we live in a culture that says you just need more money. But there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. Paul goes on to tell Timothy in verse 18, command them to do good. What we just read, command them to do good. Paul says, yeah, don't just ask. Don't, don't let them sit and just think about it, right? Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. Jesus doesn't say, you know, I want you to go think about now that I've healed you, now that I've set you free. I want you to go think about whether or not you should go back to the way you were or, or whether or not, of Of course, he gives us freedom to do what we want to do. But Jesus says, go, no, sin no more. Go and be set free. Go and live faithfully. Command them, he tells Timothy, to do good things, to be rich in good deeds. In other words, always do the right thing. Always do the right thing. And doing the right thing takes a lot of wisdom. Doing the right thing, um, part of, part of it's explained here for us. Part of what it means for us to always do the right thing, no matter how much money it costs us, no how, no no matter how it makes us look in the company that we're in, it might even be kind of embarrassing might even be humiliating, always do the right thing. Part of doing the right thing is being generous and sharing what we have. But all of this takes wisdom. You don't don't buy an alcoholic a drink. You don't give someone with a gambling addiction a thousand bucks, right? This takes wisdom. That isn't generosity, that's enabling. And the challenge for some of us is when we hear this about generosity and about sharing, we don't always get to see the end of the gift, right? We don't get to see always where it ends up. And many of us, I think, don't give because we think, well, we're just probably enabling some problem that we're not aware of. We're just enabling. And so part of part of doing the right thing, part of living generously and sharing what we have is surrendering to the, the mystery of God's sovereignty and God's providence, that he is actually working for our good and for the good of those that we're serving in the midst of all of this. We don't always get to see the end of the gift and still we're called to always do the right thing. So when I say be generous, and when I say give, of course we've talked we're talking about money in particular, but that that includes of course everything, and, and y'all know that our our time, our energy, our resources. But a lot of times the pr- preachers bail on money because it's it gets too uncomfortable, and it's like the I, it's so personal, and it's the it's the one thing people don't want to let go of, and so it's it's hard to talk about. So I mean, of course, all the things when it when we talk about generosity, when we talk about about sharing and giving but but I want to stay focused for a minute on money because it's really important for us to understand generosity and sharing when it comes to money because it's often the one thing we don't want to let go of it's that love that's the root of all evils it's that love that creates idols quickly that where where we get caught in a steel trap <laughs> but money itself isn't inherently evil Right, Wesley actually preached on money, and money itself isn't inherently evil. It's the love of money that is. And so God wants us to use money for good. This, these are Wesley's three points in his famous sermon on the use of money. He says, gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. So Wesley wasn't opposed to folks making money, especially brothers and sisters of Christ, because he felt like we would be the best stewards of God's resources. What Wesley underestimated when he preached this sermon, sort of in the middle of his ministry, before he got older, was, was that the more people gained and the more people saved, what he, what he underestimated was, and what he saw in reality, what happened, they stopped giving. The more they gained and the more they saved, the less they gave. gave. And that became a huge problem for Wesley. This was the problem that he saw. But he he wanted God's people to gain all that they could. And there's uh, there's this sense of not being lazy with Wesley. He was allergic to laziness. He had 12 rules for his lay preachers and rule number one for his lay preachers was this, and we can sense this and gain all you can. Be diligent, never be unemployed a moment. Never be triflingly employed. Say that 10 times fast. Never while away time neither spend any more time at any place than is strictly necessary. You can sense this productive urgency in Wesley. Like, don't mess around. Get after your business. Get after it. Get going. Gain all you can. And it was to get to point two, save all you can. And his point here in save all you can, he admonished his preachers and his folks to live simply. It wasn't to save, to waste it all away or to develop pleasures for all of the great delicacies of life. And this this is where, man, this, he steps on all of our toes, all of the new things that we purchase. He's like, he, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't want us to save all we could to waste it all our, on ourselves and all the, the different pleasures that we can distract ourselves with that takes us away from God's will. But he, he says, save all you can so that you can give all you can. So that you can give all you can. Needless to say, Wesley would have his work cut out for us if he were to show up today, and he would be up for the task. So if we look at this list, these three points, I don't think uh, this list describes our culture. Do you? I don't think so. I think what describes our culture, we could leave point one as gain all you can. We would have to change point two instead of save spend all you can, right? Gain all you can, spend all you can. Instead of give all you can, give what you can. I think that more accurately describes our culture and our time and our place. And for Wesley to give all that he could, he started. He started with the biblical principle of the 10% tithe. That's where, that's where Wesley started, and Wesley said, you know, as, as the brothers and sisters, the sons and daughters of God, continue to pursue holiness and grow closer to God, they grow in, in their ability to give. They grow and they give like God gives. Wesley said this famously before he died. He said, if upon my death you find that I possess more than 10 pounds, you should know that I died a thief and a robber. <laughs> like what? <laughs> and it was—it's reported that he had six pounds between drawers and the floor of his house. That they, they, they put six pounds together. So it goes to Wesley's name after he died. And and this is a guy—he lived on thirty pounds a year when he was making fourteen hundred pounds a year. He gave over thirty thousand pounds a year away to the church and to the poor. For Wesley, in order to understand generosity and sharing, it, it involved giving to the church in in intrinsic to that is giving to the poor, that it isn't our fault the poor are poor. It is our responsibility to care for those, all of those in our community. And that's intrinsic to Wesley's understanding of generosity and sharing. Wesley, Wesley lay, lived on basically 2%. I mean, so um, you talk about practice what you preach, I mean, I understand, I, I cannot say anything to you. I cannot preach anything to you that I'm not willing to do that I shouldn't already be doing. Wesley can preach the way he preaches because that's how he lived. And that's the kind of heart that we're called to have, a heart that gives joyfully to God. And, and I don't know. I don't know where any of us are on the giving spectrum. But God's promise is, as we share, as we give, as we grow closer to God, that we start to grab hold of life that is truly life. That to spend all that we have on ourselves is playing at life and losing. But we grab hold of life, Paul tells Timothy, we grab hold of life that is truly life, when we pursue holiness and grow in the love of God, and and part of that is just learning to give, to give everything that we have, all that we have away. And so my prayer for us, my prayer for you is that we may grow with generous hearts in such a way that we get disappointed when we can't give the way we feel like God's called us to give. That We we get like frustrated when someone approaches us and and we know we we need to respond with generosity, but we can't. And so the Holy Spirit, I, I just pray that the Holy Spirit works in us in such a way that we continue to rally the troops and we meet needs that we can't, individually meet, but together we can meet. Like, that's that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me. I want to leave us with a question. And for Wesley, you know, for a guy like Wesley, this wouldn't be that big a deal. This wouldn't be a huge, huge, huge question. But for us, it's... And this isn't for a collective we. Like, so I'm not speaking of to the to the congregation we. I'm speaking to you. I'm going to point and you and you. And if someone has a mirror, I can look at it and say you to myself. I feel like this is a faithful question. In light of God's word and all the things that we're taught in Scripture, in the legacy of our roots, what more can you give? What more can you give? Kurt, I'm going to call you out. Can you ask me that question? Could you ask me that question? Thank you. Let's pray on that. Holy God, there's nothing that we can give that you have not already given. All of our attempts fall short. And my prayer for me, Lord, and, and for us all is help us continue to learn to let go. Let go of the things we feel like we have to hold on to for security, that are, that are fleeting, that are temporary, that are paper, that, that are that are false, God. Help us not trust in in. And lay up our hopes and our treasure here and things that decay, things that can be erased, things that can erode and go away, God. But help us trust and store up treasure with you where it's untouchable, where it's eternal. God, increase in us, give us us generous hearts, and may we grow in generosity. And I don't know what it means for each individual here and for myself and Lindsay Kay, God, but work in us and speak to us and help us understand what more I can give, what more everybody here can give. And give us that answer as we continue to grow closer to you. Lord, help us help those less fortunate who cannot help themselves. We love you, God. We pray all this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.